Hello there, everyone. This is Dan Figella here at Tech Emergence, where we interview entrepreneurs, researchers, and investors in the domain of emerging technology. In the intersection of technology and psychology, we've we've talked to a number of CEOs and, and even research folks in augmented and virtual reality. Today, I'm lucky enough to have the current director of the Duke Immersive Virtual Environment with me on the line, Dr. Hedges Kupfer. Uh, and today, we're going to be speaking about virtual humans and their use and application. Dr. Hedges, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I know that... Um, I was actually, when I was at a, a, a speech down there at Duke talking about VR, I had uh, one of the, the MBA folks let me know that I really had to get in touch with you. And I know some of your postdoc work had to do with virtual humans and interactions with virtual humans. You know, I think a lot of people might be under the impression that any application at all of virtual humans is sort of maybe kind of humorous and involved mostly in video games and we might not really see any applications of until, you know, decades from now. But I know that there are currently uses and somewhat meaningful applications of virtual humans um, in research and other contexts. Can you go into a little bit of, of where we're seeing them used today? Sure, yeah. And uh, I think virtual humans, they really have a, uh, an interesting potential in different areas, but I'm going to talk specifically about uh, training and education. Got it. So, uh, we at the University of Florida, where I did my, my postdoc, the virtual patients research group there, uh, whose uh, director is, is Dr. Ben Locke, we worked on uh, using virtual humans for helping medical students uh, get better interpersonal skills, basically how to talk to a patient uh, when uh, you, are, you are interviewing them for, for whatever disease they may have. So um, I think everybody has had a problem with a doctor before where they go and the doctor doesn't seem very pathetic. Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, the idea is that uh, there's like medical students are really well trained technically, but a lot of times they lack these, these soft skills that are very important, I think, uh, I mean, if someone goes to the doctors because they have a problem, they want to have not just the problem acknowledged from from sort of a diagnosis perspective, but they need some emotional support and, and understanding from from the doctor. So we worked on on this uh, on this project for uh, using virtual patients uh, that would present themselves to to students in a uh, sort of a almost physical way, we used uh, what we call mixed reality virtual humans where you had sort of an abstract uh, TV with the torso of a virtual human and then we used uh, uh, sort of robotic legs that would turn and, and then uh, the students would have actually look at the, the, the virtual patient and after uh, not too long amount of time they, they really would see that the the, the virtual patient can really be a person and, and people react yeah. to, to, the, to the patient as if he was a real person. And we've, uh, we've seen in, in different uh, works that have been done, different research that, that was done, that that actually is the case. For example, people get uh, responses to virtual humans that are consistent to how they respond in real life. Yeah, how do you mean that? Give me some examples, because I think it'd be great for the listeners to understand those social nuances. Yeah, so, for example, um, there's something that's called uh, implicit bias uh, test, and you can basically test for, for uh, sort of subconscious biases that everybody has, and I 
pass, which basically you uh, have to, to associate pictures with good and bad things uh, and, uh, really fast without thinking about it, you'll be surprised how much bias you may actually have, yeah. uh, even if it's not uh, intentional, and most of the uh, times it will not be. But uh, so uh, uh, there have been uh, some studies that, that uh, correlated this implicit bias with how people treat patients from, for example, different genders or, or different races. So if you're talking to a patient who is a woman, for example, you may ask different questions or you may uh, disregard or, or, or regard differently uh, some, some potential problems yeah. as you would with, uh, with a male uh, counterpart. And, and what, are, what are some examples? What are some examples of that? Like, in other words, how, how might folks respond to certain minorities or, or to women in, in general? What are some of those patterns that, that you see in the real world that you also saw in virtual reality? So, uh, for example, um, African-American people are, uh, let me see if I can remember what, what the data actually is. Uh, it's, it's much less likely that, that a patient who is African-American will be sent uh, on to further treatment. And I, I'm not a medical specialist, so I, I won't be able to tell you the details. Yeah, the exact details. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, but, but, but there's, there's some, some bias towards that. And, uh, and this is just something that, that's, not, of course, not intentional, but the data shows that that's the case. So if we use virtual humans to first acknowledge that that's, that indeed applies when people are, are talking to virtual humans, then we can uh, take uh, it to the next level where um, the virtual human will actually serve as, as sort of a, a, a social training platform to the, to the yeah. where, where the student can actually learn from their mistakes in quote, uh, quote or, or, or to the way that they're treating and they can actually uh, reflect on, on problems that may have uh, occurred during the interaction so that you can become aware of something that, that you're doing that you're not even aware of and, and it, it may, may be a problem. Got it. Okay, so the, so there is a degree of, of being able to um, to develop social calibration without having to line up a hundred real people. You can come up with a hundred virtual people that have sorts of behaviors and different word tracks and different um, appearances and things along those lines. And if you can get into a dialogue of some kind, whether it's machine learning or pre-recorded or whatever the case may be, so long as it comes across as real, you can tease out a lot of those biases and you can you can bring out a lot of those those situations and shed light on them that otherwise only experience would be able to tell you because you would never be able to have all those experiences in a lab per se. Exactly, and, and that's, that's one of the, the great advantages of using virtual reality and virtual environments in general is that we can have a safe environment so you're not putting any patients at risk, you're not uh, having to worry about uh, issues that, that you may be like exposing patients to, to different types of treatments or things like that, and you can replicate that as many times as you need. So even though you may not have the, the, the same uh, effect, the same size effect that you have if you're talking to a real person, if you have uh, uh, some degree of effect and then you replicate that multiple times, you can really get a, a, a real benefit out of it in the end. And, and, uh, 
like I said, training I think is, is really a good, a very big uh, potential for for virtual environments and, and virtual humans in general. Yeah, and I think you know training not not necessarily with virtual humans, but training in virtual reality I think is really one of its its uh, legacy applications. I mean, in military flight simulations, for example. I mean, talk about you know talk about using a virtual environment because it's safer. I mean, a flight simulator is a great example of that. But now we're talking about in increasing the complexity to the level of um, actual interactions with human beings. So with that with that being said, you know, so this is medical education. Um, where else do you see virtual humans maybe playing a role? Whether it's it's training or, or otherwise, um, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, a, a, maybe there'd be a virtual human at a bank desk. Maybe there'd be a, you know, I know none of that is, is the case right now. Where else do you see the, the research sort of um, catching traction, so to speak, in different domains? So uh, I think, uh, for example, another very big uh, potential for, for virtual humans is in uh, uh, treating uh, for 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 example, post-traumatic stress disorders are, are problems that veterans typically have. Yeah. Uh, you again, very delicate uh, situation where where you have someone with PTSD, they may become violent. They very little things can trigger uh, enormous uh, uh, responses. So uh, if you use virtual humans and, and in general virtual environments, but but uh, typically you have problems with PTSD with interpersonal interaction. So uh, something as mundane as, as going to the grocery store can be a, a huge uh, challenge for, for someone who's coming back from combat and, and has been through some pretty traumatic experiences. Yes. So uh, we really could use virtual humans to, to have uh, these, these patients that, that suffer from, from post-traumatic stress disorders to start getting uh, this exposure to to social interactions that that would really be not not be safe potentially either for them or or, or for for the uh, people around <coughs> the environment. Uh, so so they can come and, and start talking to a virtual clerk, for example, in a grocery store, and then yeah. just start presenting some challenges uh, that would trigger uh, problems uh, or or. or different responses from, from the patient. Got and it. I think that, that, that we can do it, that, that you have, I think, one of the greatest potentials of, of virtual environments is that the environment doesn't need to be completely autonomous. And in this case, a lot of times you don't want it to be. You can actually have what we call a Wizard of Oz interface. And you, you could have the therapist sort of behind the, the curtain controlling yeah, this is fascinating. The Wizard of Oz interface. I've never heard the term, but I absolutely love the analogy. So, yeah, yeah. so you're saying that therapists could be controlling the clerk's actions, movements, behaviors, voice. Exactly, and perhaps even uh, a, a bang in the environment and that you can see uh, the, the patient is in the confines of a, of a lab, so, so they're not going to... I mean, they may, uh, they will read it most likely, and, and like I said, with such a strong that people react to virtual environments consistently with the way that they react in the real world. So they may become distressed, but then you can uh, you can measure how much you're going to give. This is called exposure therapy. You'll, you'll uh, start uh, presenting challenges to, to the patient yeah. progressively, 
until they, they feel comfortable with a realistic situation. And, and this is, you know, Alf, uh, this is uh, Bandura's work here, you know, with snakes in, in the cage. Yeah, if you exactly. look up, if anybody wants to look up, you know, fear of snakes, uh, Bandura, uh, you'll find some interesting kind of exposure research where they actually do use the real world and, and they have folks kind of deal with their their um, uh, their various fears in, in the real world in that particular way. This is just doing the same thing in a calibrated, customizable, Wizard of Ozable virtual world, which which sounds like thera therapeutic applications is another application. And he just, or he just, I, I uh, the, you know, it's interesting as you were saying that, you know, doctors are trained technically, but not socially. There's a company here, I'm in the, the Cambridge Innovation Center, um, right on MIT campus. And there's a company upstairs that, that does just that. They sell some kind of a video subscription annual service to hospitals where um, they deal with different uh, sit-down situations with folks of different races, with different conditions and different gender conditions and things along those lines and train people how to respond empathetically and properly to get over some of those biases. So it seems like there, there is actually a market for that in addition to kind of the ap academic application. And that takes me into my, into my next question, which is, you know, you're, you're in this world uh, at, at Dive at Duke and as well as, you know, your doctoral and postdoc research and, and, you know, presentations for, you know, the IEEE and all other, other uh, various and sundry involvement in this domain. Where do you see virtual humans sort of stepping into a little bit more of the mainstream than they are now? The normal time frame we like to talk about in tech emergence is maybe the next half decade, five years or so. You know, where might we see virtual humans? Right now, everybody and their mother knows about, you know, the video games, the World War II video games and the sword fighting video games where, you know, of course we have virtual humans there. Um, where do you think they might start to play a more prominent role in, in the coming maybe five years or so, if, if, if at all? I, th I think uh, really uh, training and education is, is the key. And, and uh, we've uh, been doing that in the lab for a while. And but there, uh, like you said, uh, you, you have this company that uh, already does. I, I'm not sure if it's uh, with virtual environments. It's not. It's not. I think it's just with regular videos and articles and things along those lines that are categorized per sort of situation. I see, but, but there's a, a spin-off company from, from the, the Virtual Experience Research Group at University of Florida that's called, um, uh, oh, the name skips me now, but basically it's a company that's selling modules of training to, to nurse schools uh, for, for students to actually get uh, their curricular uh, uh, activity or their cur curricular um, requisites through a, a virtual human interaction. Wow. So, so, that's intense. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll be interested in that in that company as well. So you think that's a that's some traction on the training side of things is that maybe we'll have more and more of that where you'll be able to get a somewhat similar, especially as uh, graphics and and intelligence and machine intelligence gets more advanced, you'll be able to have similar experiences and be able to to learn similar skills by hopping into a virtual world and, and really being able to develop um, something meaningful there, not just like one random little skill, one random little, little interaction, but it sounds like these people are really going to get school credit. Oh, certainly, yeah. They are already. There are several schools that, that have started using it, and I think the trend is, is for this to, to continue growing with other companies and, and other applications, because we're talking right now about medical education, which is the, the, the domain that, that I worked on and where uh, all of this ha has started. 
but but there are several other uh, potential areas where where you could use virtual humans in uh, for training, and I think that training is is a, a big maybe the, the biggest application here because you can have these controlled ex, uh, exposures and, and uh, repeated exposures. So uh, you can think of um, any really any application that involves. Uh, talking to, to to a person to, to develop your skills as, as a potential uh, benefit. So, so for example, psychology education, or or um, yeah, I mean that would be sociology. fantastic to understand okay. social dynamics via an actual interaction. You know, all these human heuristics and so so much of what I what I learned in undergrad and graduate psych, I think would have been great to have even a small and maybe not even that robust virtual experience to sort of back up what this looks like, what this feels like, because it's it's definitely not the same to just read it. Yeah, and, and you make a good point, I think, as it really doesn't have to be uh, absolutely realistic. No! There's something that I'm not sure you're familiar with, but, but the concept of suspension of disbelief. Yep. That once you are um, into... A situation that you accept that it is less than perfect, you accept, accept that as being the ground truth, and, and you start uh, responding to to the to the experience as if it was true. So so uh, that that's a, a really I, I think we can leverage this ability that we as humans have in order to even with with the technical limitation that we have, and, and truth be told, we don't have the capacity of building a virtual human that will be completely seamless and that would respond to you to every single question. Definitely you not, but, yeah. Not now. Yeah, but but uh, even even now we're able to, to use virtual humans and, and leverage this uh, this special disbelief that, that people who are willing to 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 uh, to benefit from the environment they can have uh, I, I think that's that's a a very good uh, potential uh, and, and it's, it's already an application. Yeah, that's that's curious. So I see it in nursing, but again, even just reflecting on my own education, I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, there's so many of these psychological concepts or, or ideas around sort of how we relate to each other and how we think that if you could play it out in a real circumstance, it would really make it click, even if that person wasn't quote unquote real. And I and I think that, you know, as, as you had just mentioned, you know, they don't have to be seamlessly real for it to um, for someone to respond in a similar way, Kurzweil famously talks about in, in his uh, How to Create a Mind book how when we, you know, when we're interacting with an entity, no matter no matter what its sort of physical form, he he he, I think believe he says something along these lines. No matter its physical form, even if it's just sort of a voice, if it if it can respond to us and communicate in a way that a human would, you know, in a voice or in text, and if it can express its own desires and and it and a desire to sort of keep itself alive. Um, even if it's not conscious and maybe we feel like it's not conscious, we'll still have an ethical uh, tie to it. We'll still feel something for it. We might even want to protect it. And that it's going to be difficult to, to pry ourselves away from that because, you know, we respond to a certain kind of stimuli and, and a, certain, uh, a certain set of conditions and that when those are presented, machine or otherwise, we're likely to behave the same. It sounds like your research is sort of shown something similar even in these imperfect virtual environments. Yeah, yeah, and along the lines of what you're saying, there's a, a very interesting book by Jim Blaskovich and Jeremy Bales. And, uh, Jeremy Bales is a psychologist at Stanford who works a lot on uh, using virtual reality for actual uh, uh, 
clinical psychology and experimental psychology studies, the book is Infinite Reality, and the idea of the book is that really virtual reality, uh, everything uh, really is an interpretation that we make of the world. Yep. So, uh, really, virtual reality doesn't have to be that different from reality because everything has to go through a filter in our brains in order to, for us to process and, and understand it. And the hypothesis is that the more we, we are interacting with virtual things, the more they become natural to us and, and we, we start reacting to, to the, these virtual experiences as if they were our everyday experiences and, and they actually may, may be, come to be our everyday yeah. And that's and that's sort of the next question, and I don't believe most folks are are ready to even contemplate this. But I think I think we ought to now rather than later. Um, is is this idea that uh, you know in in the future, as you had mentioned, everything's going through a filter in the first place. You know, Descartes has its his famous example of you know being being a, a you know trapped as a trapped in a, a gigantic hallucination controlled by some demon of some kind where, where you know, he can't necessarily trust any of his senses. And, and to some degree, I mean, none of us really get to escape that thought experiment. And to some degree, when we're experiencing a virtual world and when we do suspend disbelief, if we experience the same emotions, if we glean the same benefits, if we learn important lessons, if we further ourself and and uh, deepen our experience in that world, isn't that still an experience? Isn't that still sort of to some degree happening? Um, so, yeah, and I mean, you're going to develop memories of that experience. Yeah. You it, develop memories of, of real experiences. Completely. Like with the dive uh, here uh, at Duke, it's, it's one of the, the few six-sided immersive environments, really a cube that you are completely surrounded by the environment. So wherever you look, it's the virtual environment. It takes very little time for people to be in that. Really, you, you don't realize that you're in a cube. You, you really start uh, thinking that you are in a greater environment. Yeah. When we shut down the projectors, people get a little disoriented because they're in such a small, like, 10-foot cube. <laughs> it seems like they were in, in a much larger space. Uh, we have, like, one... one demo that we always give to people it's it's sort of a it has a pit like you're on top of a bridge you look down people they get um, uh, fear of heights and yeah it's uh, they, they start sweating and it's really i mean you get these gut reactions that, that are, are very natural and, and even if the environment's not realistic you, you know that you are in a, in a something even much less uh, realistic than a computer game and still uh, people uh, react very uh, realistic to it. No, completely, and, and that doesn't surprise me one bit. And I think that as graphics get better and better, and as these virtual worlds aren't all proprietary but become relatively open, and just like websites, we get to explore different virtual worlds sort of at our leisure or work away at them or you know customize them in different ways. Um, and, and again, graphics and the full immersive experience becomes more, more prevalent. My last question here is, you know, how how might this sort of uh, you know how how far might this go? You know, I, I've I've uh, I interviewed a company called uh, Murray VR and, and they're working on um, VR goggles that folks can wear to have as many work computer displays around them as possible and interact with them like you had mentioned by pointing their finger or different ways like that instead of using a mouse and being able to do their work in that 
way in a VR world so that they can be in a tiny cube, you know, back to back with other workers. But it looks like they're on top of a mountain and there's peaceful music and they can and instead of needing 20 computer screens, they can have as many displays up in the virtual world as they want. And they can be sitting down at a meeting two seconds later with, you know, 12 people who are actually not in the same room. Um, and they can only be interacting and talking and listening to those specific people and not and not other folks. Um, and that, you know, my thought was shucks, you know, it doesn't seem like too much of a jump in decades ahead for work to be in a virtual world, period. You know, my, my thought is, you know, might virtual reality literally trump reality? You know, you talked about infinite reality. It's all going through a filter anyway. Um, where else do you see VR really having that kind of just gargantuan potential? You know, I think some people might fear, you know, shucks, you know, maybe at some point I'll be able to build like the characteristics of a, a best virtual friend who will be, you know, better and more honest than all my other friends and give me better advice, you know, from history and from yeah. all the knowledge of the internet. And yeah, it almost I, seems... I, I, yeah, I think that, that can be as much as a, a potential benefit as a risk. As yeah. A, and I think we, we have to to be careful with our humanity. And, and uh, make sure that we don't drift away too much from it. So, so I'm uh, I'm a little uh, uh, worried when we start talking about let's just move completely to the virtual world and forget about the reverse because I think intrinsically we're still humans and we have to interact with. At least uh, I believe that that, that uh, if uh, we interact with other humans, that's how we, we're gonna uh, advance ourselves. But but I. I I see what you're saying about having, uh, being able to work completely from a virtual environment. And I do think that that has potential, although I think it's, it's uh, decades off because of, of current techn uh, technical limitations. But I think that the, really the key, and, and right now, recently with, with the Facebook acquisition of Oculus Rift, I think this is really a great time for virtual reality to, to Really get to everyone's house just like any uh, game console, and but but I think that that a key thing for for the short to medium term is to find where it really makes sense to to use virtual environments as opposed to try to solve everything with virtual environments. So, for example, one example that I always use, I think there's nothing like better than a desktop and a keyboard and a mouse to write text. And I don't think a, a virtual environment will ever did that. Uh, except if you are uh, in, in a situation where you are in, in a virtual environment like what you're mentioning, which is more like a matrix yeah. environment where you really can be in a, on a desktop within the virtual environment. Exactly, exactly. There, uh, uh, it would have potential, although I think that's ways off. It's still, there needs to be much research in that arena, but Right now, when we're starting out up to the next uh, decade, a couple decades, I think we have to find what, what are the situations where we can actually really benefit with the, the, the technical uh, limitations and the technical capabilities that we have today and that we're going to have in the, in the next couple decades. What are the applications that really can benefit from it? And that, I think it's an open question. I think it was, um, I'm going to mention again, uh, Facebook and Oculus was really uh, surprising and, and uh, I think the, the deal was, was announced two days before the IEEE virtual reality conference last year uh, and everybody was was pretty baffled 
with with this idea of all companies Facebook. So we have to think, trying to, to think what Mark Zuckerberg um, was thinking when, when he thought of that. And I think it has a lot to do with social interaction. Oh, I think so all day long. I think I think people who are separated from their their school friends or their family. I think they want to have a virtual coffee with them, to be honest with you. I don't think they want to be chatting. Or, you know, I yeah. think they want to have the ability to do so. Maybe I shouldn't say always have the preference, but they... From, I mean, 20 years ago, we would send letters. I went to, to... I was an exchange student in Australia back in 1995, and I would uh, communicate with my families and friends with, with regular letters, which is unthinkable of today. Unthinkable, um, yes, unthinkable. Yeah, then we we went through uh, email and, and after that chat and, and then Skype like we're, we're talking now. Yes. I think the next evolution is can we really have this telepresence where we uh, we can experience our peers as if they were in the room but it doesn't I, I don't think it, it's substitute. I If I have a neighbor or, or a friend my school friend I would not uh, not see him because I can see him through yeah, it, w it is different. It is different. Now, who's to say whether haptics and the evolution of the technology in, let's say, half a century might make it so that it's almost negligibly different? But at least as of right now, you're more than correct. You know, it, this is different than you and me actually having a coffee. Yeah, yeah. But, but it, it's more than, than you and me talking over Skype. So, so I think it's, uh, it's just another or another way to, yep. to, to interact that, that uh, is one step closer, but uh, I don't think it's substitute. Yeah, and who's to say that in 50 or 100 years, it's, it's, it's not going to have a difference. Yeah, yeah. It's changing so fast, we, we, the, we can say, but... That's what I've been saying. I mean, you know, you had mentioned less than 20 years ago, you're sending letters. Um, so to, just to wrap up here, he just it, it sounds like, you know, for you, you know, companies that want to have, you know, the, the that want to get the traction that... that um, you know, it sounds like Oculus really put VR back on the map, and I think a lot of people recognize that. But for companies that want to get traction, the real question is, where is the utility today? You know, and, and, and where, where will it actually make things better and not just be an interesting experiment if you want to build a viable business and gain as much traction as you can? That, that's the question that, that obviously you're concerned with in research and that maybe you'd encourage other people to sort yes, of think through. I would say focus on, on training. Think of where uh, training, and that can be any area, but where, uh, because training you really need to, to go through several... You need to experience, yeah. And, and virtual environments are perfect for that. They're great. It's better than a video, like you're talking about that company that, that sells videos for... for Hospitals, uh, yeah. Teaching about that bias and, and training for that and all that sort of thing. What if you can make that interactive, but not only interactive, can make that immersive and yeah. so, so think of think of uh, situations where you really uh, one, one project that I worked on was mind safety uh, that's really a great application you you uh, have a mind situation you have you have to do drills uh, for 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 mind uh, accidents that may happen you don't want to do those drills in the mind because that would be too risky and probably wouldn't be very effective to do that in um, you watching a video or reading a book. But if you are inside an immersive virtual environment, you can have a lot of the, the, the real experience that you'll get in the mind with the, the added benefits of replication and safety 
and uh, and measurements that you can you can control for. So I think training is really the key for for virtual reality uh, moving forward. Yeah, and I think I think augmented reality has a lot of traction or is gaining a lot of traction. Sort of the the um, the training aspect as well, you know, how yes. can we how can we overlay information? So it sounds like there's a bit of a confluence there, and it's it's great to get your perspective. I know different researchers have different backgrounds um, and see different futures, but I really appreciate yours, Hedges, and, and thanks so much for being able to be here. If people want to learn more about your research, what what you folks are up to at Duke, um, where can they go to learn more? I know you mentioned that cube. I think that'd be fun to learn about. Where could people go? Okay, so. You can visit virtualreality.edu, that's the, the lab's website. You'll learn a little more about uh, um, the research and, and educational projects that have been done in the dive. And uh, we are right now upgrading the system, and we're going to have a much higher resolution system coming in February. And we do hold open houses every Thursday at 4 p.m. Uh, of course, now during renovation, it's not happening, but if you happen to be in the Research Triangle area in North Carolina. Pay us a visit uh, coming February and on to to experience this on yourselves. Fantastic! Yeah, I, I was in the uh, I was in the what do they call it? The cave at at Brown, and I know Brown is actually working on a fully a more kind of upgraded immersive experience. It sounds like you're going through one as well. So yes. everybody's everybody's stepping the game up. That is good to hear. So okay, you you heard it, folks. Virtualreality.duke.edu. Uh, and again, Professor Hedges, thanks so much for being able to take the time here on Tech Emergence. Thank you for having me.